This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. Why don't you get Billy dressed? I'll take him into town with him. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. Good afternoon, Food House shoppers. You have hereby been accepted to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. And I'm Bradford Lorick. And it appears we may have a problem of some magnitude. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. And we call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school today, as it were, to learn something new. And this fella will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado by the name of Bradford P. Lorick Esquire. You know, Mr. Winnick, we've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Folks, it may not seem this way, but a lot of work actually goes into these podcasts, and so we would like to ask you to do us a little favor. Yes, uh, however long you listen to Scare You, be it five minutes, ten minutes, an hour and fifteen minutes, three hours and thirty-five minutes, whatever it is, if we give you one iota of listening pleasure, please leave us a rating in Apple Podcasts. Now, I'd prefer five stars, but I'll take a four star. And we know it's hard. We know. So when you download the podcast, just scroll down on the app to where it says write a review. That's all you got to do. All right. So back to the podcast. Joining us today to discuss the 2007 film The Mist is our first two-time guest all the way from sunny Los Angeles, California, the divine Gretchen McNeil. I'm sure you all know Gretchen from her appearance on our April Fool's Day episode. I know I do. But for the two or three of you who may be unfamiliar, Gretchen is the author of several young adult novels, including Possess, 359, Relic, Get Even, Get Dirty, and 10, as well as the horror comedy novels, Hashtag Murder Trending, Hashtag Murder Funding, and hashtag 
no escape. Her most recent novel is Dig Two Graves, pitched as a YA Strangers on a Train. Ten, Murder Island, the film adaptation of Ten, premiered on Lifetime in 2017, and Get Even and Get Dirty have been adapted as the series Get Even and Rebel Cheer Squad, a Get Even series, for the BBC and Netflix. Her books have been published in more than a dozen languages all over the world. So how are you, Ms. McNeil, and what have you been up to since our last foray? Since our last foray, I've been doing much of same, which is raising small feral creatures, my children yeah. and my cats, Yes, uh, and writing to deadline per use. I have a, a book that's out in March that I just finished up final edit type things on, and I turned in edits on my book that will be out in March of 2024, because we like a long lead time Ooh. in publishing. Yes. And uh, Bradford, I would like to have you record that intro so that I can play it at every event I ever go to. Because <laughs> just hearing you say, get even and get dirty is like the <laughs> best thing ever. So can oh, we make that happen, please? Sweet. Yeah, of course. Anything for you. It does make get dirty sound a lot dirtier than it actually is. There's nothing dirty uh, about those books. There's no sex in them whatsoever. But um, but the way I Mr. Lorick reads the title makes it sound it like it's, you know. Mexi time. Deep, <laughs> deep throat or something. <laughs> deep throat, the YA novel. Um. Uh, <laughs> Gretchen, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book that's coming out in March? Sure. It's called Three Drops of Blood. And sort of keeping with a Hitchcock-inspired train, it is a YA reimagining of Rear Window. It is about a teen actress in Los Angeles named Kate, who is on a hit Netflix show that gets canceled when the 17-year-old starlet is caught having an affair with her 38-year-old married showrunner. He gets arrested. She defends him publicly on TikTok, and Netflix cancels the show. So our dear protagonist, Kate, gets sort of caught up in the drama. Her agent says they can't send her on any auditions for at least six months. Meanwhile, she's told her parents she is not going to complete high school and go to college. And so they're starting to charge her rent. So in order to follow her dream, she gets a job filing at night in her best friend's dad's law firm. And while trapped in a file room known as the dungeon, she witnesses a large and in charge lady boss in the office across the courtyard from hers, murder her assistant and a man that Kate believes is her husband, but there's no bodies and nobody believes that she actually saw these murders except the killer who is now coming after her. So it was a lot of fun to write. It sort of goes from teen Hollywood drama to rear window to escape the building die hard in the blink of an eye. And uh, I really, really, I feel very strongly about this book. I mean, I feel strongly about all my books. You can't ask me to choose a favorite, but I, I really enjoyed the process of writing and editing this one. And I hope that people enjoy reading it. Ooh, can't wait. Sounds great. Have you thought about doing something ever that skews a little bit younger? Because I would like to see like a a preschool targeted adaptation of Rope. 
<laughs> Do you think you could knock um, that out? I mean, even I just mean, for my own personal amusement. I feel like I feel like my my two and a half year old and four year old act that out uh, <laughs> on a nightly basis. <laughs> I, I think I'm sort of imagining like a, a sort of rugrats with a big trunk in the middle. You in know? the middle, and yeah. we don't know what's in the trunk, and it turns out that it's you know mom's dead decaying body. I love that exactly. so much, by the way. Um, so the problem with writing for younger is I can't drop F-bombs in a picture book. Uh, so it makes it complicated for me to write. I can see the conundrum. So uh, Gretchen, the last time we mm-hmm. talked, mm-hmm. we asked you about your history with the horror genre. You told us that as a Gen Xer, you were from Generation Sleepover Party. Oh, yes. And all that that entails, meaning that you had watched April Fool's Day, American Werewolf in London, The Exorcist, and that your favorite horror film was Mm -hmm. John Carpenter's The Thing, which inspired your book, Relic. Yes, still stands, yes. Uh, Is there anything new or recent that you've enjoyed since the last time we spoke, which was back in November? Actually, I'm going to give you two props for this movie wreck I'm about to lay down because I listened to your episode on The Old Dark House. Weirdly, I had seen the comedy 1960s version with Tom Poston, but I had never seen the original. And I watched it. I had, because it's only an hour long, which is brilliant, because I usually only get an hour of free time. So I watched it and loved it. And it reminded me of a film that I loved going back to, I don't know, middle school, maybe early high school, uh, a black and white gem called The Uninvited. Oh, yeah. um, With Ray Milland. It's about a brother and sister who get a house at a steep discount in Cornwall, right on the cliffs. Beautiful, beautiful setting. Um, And quickly come to realize that the house is haunted and they have to figure out who's haunting them and how it's connected to this impossibly charming young woman who lives in town. Um, And it was one of the first sort of supernatural haunted house ghost stories. And it has all the wonderful trappings of... Um, you know, ectoplasm mists and things like that sort of coming in and out. And it didn't immediately inspire a lot of copycats in the way that some of the monster movies had done, but Mm -hmm. it did inspire other gems of this, like uh, The Innocence with Deborah Carr. Um, Even, I would say, The Haunting, which is, you know, the first film adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House. And uh, in, in its use of cinematography of black and white of shadow and light like if you haven't seen it i highly recommend it and i went back and rewatched it because of your podcast um that that's pretty high praise i love it uh and i'm gonna have to rewatch the uninvited it's been a long time Uh, So now let's discuss what this film is about. Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your brief, spoiler-free synopses? I will. Let me just uh, start up the music here. 
Mr. Winnick. Look at me. Um, that's that's not Mark Isham's music from the film. It's not. No, no, no. That's that's Misty performed by Johnny Mathis. Oh, that's so funny because because <laughs> I was listening to this and I'm like, that's so weird because it's not in the film. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, just just cue up the right music, please. Sorry. After surviving a torrential nor'easter that rips parts of his home and adjoining properties to shreds, Bridgeton, Maine resident and graphic artist David Drayton, his son Billy, and wife Steph notice a strange fog rolling in on the lake behind their house. After confirming that his boathouse was crushed by neighbor Brent Norton's old tree, a source of old resentments, David gathers Billy and Brent into his Jeep and heads into town for supplies. Upon arrival at the local supermarket, The Food House, into which half the town seems to have crammed, it becomes apparent that the mist is no longer on the lake. In fact, it's now at the doorstep of the supermarket. Inside the store, we meet a gaggle of characters, Ollie Weeks and Bud Brown, the store's co-managers. Mrs. Carmody, a God-fearing woman who's convinced that man has brought shame and disgrace upon the world. Feisty old Mrs. Repler, who's not a fan of Mrs. Carmody. Locals Jim, Myron, Hattie, and Ambrose. And Dan Miller, whose frantic first appearance in the store heralds the danger to come. For there are terrors lurking in the mist. The stuff of Hieronymus Bosch nightmares. Monstrous beings that make even the act of venturing outside dangerous and deadly, and perhaps portend the coming of the apocalypse. Well, I would say extraordinary work, sir, but you almost blew it, so we'll just say acceptable Mm. for now. Okay, okay. So this film was directed by Mr. Frank Darabont, whose birth name is Ferenc Arpad Darabont. And his history in Hollywood goes back into the 80s. He wrote the script for A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, The Blob, and The Fly 2. And in 1994, he made his second film as a director, a little ditty about Jack and Diane that we like to call The Shawshank Redemption. Which, like The Mist, is based on a story by one Stephen King. Maybe you've heard of him if only because you've listened to our episodes on the adaptations of King's Carrie and It. Shawshank was, of course, nominated for seven Academy Awards in 1995, the most for a Stephen King film adaptation, uh, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Sadly, it did not win in any category. Darabont went on to direct two more King adaptations, including The Green Mile, which was also nominated for Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay, and The Mist, which was nominated for exactly zero Academy Awards. The Mist is Darabont's last credited film as a director, although he did go on to co-create a TV series you may have heard of called The Walking Dead, based on the comic book by Robert Kirkman. Never heard of it. The cast of The Mist includes Thomas Jane as our protagonist, David Drayton, Nathan Gamble as his son, Billy, 
Toby Jones as Ollie Weeks, Andre Brower as Brent Norton, Laurie Holden as Amanda Dunfrey, and Jeffrey DeMunn as Dan Miller, a character described in the novella as being from Lynn, Massachusetts. Wait a minute. Would that be Lynn, Lynn, the city of sin? It would indeed. Well, I would also like to point out that Nathan Gamble, who plays young Billy, is also in a movie called Marley and Me. And from what I understand, that's a movie about Owen Wilson adopting Marley Matlin and eventually burying her in a shoebox in the backyard. So I think I would like to look into that further. But the film also stars national treasure Frances Sternhagen as Mrs. Repler and the exquisite Marcia Gay Harden with fear and trembling as the expiating religious freak Mrs. Mother Carmody. Well, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. And then we make fun of the critics. Yes. So The Mist was released on November 21st, 2007. Its budget was a lean $18 million, and it brought in $25.5 million in the U.S. and $57.4 million worldwide. Although the film allegedly takes place in King's home state of Maine, it was actually shot in Vivian, Louisiana, which I will attest, as a native New Englander, is nowhere near Maine. The Mist currently holds a 72% on the Rotten Tomatometer, or tomato meter, as Mr. Winnick calls it, um, in her review for the New York Times titled Something Creepy This Way Creeps and It Spells Bad News. Manola Dargas mentions something about a monster, more on that after the spoiler warning, uh, then goes on to say, the revelation drains much of the dread and menace from the story. Manola went on to whine, quote, Among the most tiresomely yakky is an evangelical Christian, Mrs. Carmody, whose observations about the end of days first attract testy scorn and then an increasingly violent following inside the little supermarket community. This latter day, Amy Semple McPherson turns out to be just as much of a threat as the mist though a considerably less pleasurable narrative conceit. Our boy Roger Ebert was even less impressed, writing in a review he titled, Attention shoppers, get eaten during our loading dock sale. I quote, If you have seen ads or trailers suggesting that horrible things pounce on people and they make you think you want to see this movie, you will be correct. It is a competently made horrible things pouncing on people movie. If you think Frank Darabont has equaled the Shawshank and Green Mile track record, you will be sadly mistaken. Zing. Oof. Finally, Justin Chang of Variety wrote, Darabont's desire to infuse an otherwise fleet genre exercise with dramatic significance, to make a statement about man's cruelty to man in times of crisis, ends up defeating him here. Playing like the schizoid hellspawn of Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds and the low-budget bioterrorism thriller Right at Your Door, Pick is arguably less persuasive than either in advancing a bitterly pessimistic view of human nature. And now's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film 
which in this case, and every case, is you, Mr. Lorick. But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Gretchen, that unlike me, you in fact had seen this film before. Yes, in the theater in 2007. Great. All right. So uh, now, please allow me to inform you and our listening audience why I chose this film for the curriculum. Please do. <sighs> well, it's, it's really not the only horror movie about atmosphere, but it is among the best. Uh, and I think that it has um, a relationship to John Carpenter's The Fog in the sense that it's about a sentient atmospheric condition within which spooky things reside. Um, I like that it's sort of at its heart a really straightforward monster movie with a fairly simple story, but I think it's told with such nuance and expertise that it becomes something bigger. Um, and I think that it opens out and opens out and opens out again until it becomes a sort of trans-dimensional horror story. Um, I love that it literally opens on a dark and stormy night. Uh, it's a sort of prestige production of a Stephen King source uh, from a big studio with a top flight cast and a decent budget. And so I think it's always kind of great when those kinds of things uh, coalesce into something really enjoyable. Um, it's a great ensemble story. Um, and, you know, sure, we have a, a point of entry into the film through David Drayton, but I think the the principal and supporting actors are all turning in pretty excellent performances nearly across the board. Um, I'm a big fan of the handheld verite documentary style cinematography, which I think first kind of makes you ask from whose point of view we're meant to be experiencing the film. But I think what it does really effectively um, and, and efficiently um, is, is it makes you as the viewer feel like you are sort of in the store among these people. Um, I really like that it's kind of a, a fast-burning, slow burn. Um, I think it, it feels long. It feels um, intentional. Uh, and I think the human drama at the center of the story is really paramount. Um, the characters kind of shifting vicissitudes and their alliances and allegiances, the times when they uh, come together as sort of collective factions versus when they operate as little islands unto themselves uh, is, is kind of fascinating to chart. Um, it, it is principally set inside a grocery store, which I think is a, a kind of great equalizer, uh, especially where in times of crisis, every creed and stripe of human being can be found in a grocery store. Um, and that also allows for there to be a, a nice group of disposable, dispensable tertiary characters upon whom the things in the mist can feast. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that the way the characters are written is kind of great. Um, you know, every sort of quality about every character kind of comes in fits and starts in this film, um, whether that's fear or bravery or um, thinking about faith or conspiracy, um, you know, which is always nice. You know, I, I think it's it's unusual in a horror film to see characters who grow or change or, or continue to surprise us. Um, and I think many of the characters in The Mist 
do that. Um, and of course, in a, in a situation where chaos reigns, um, God is soon brought in to sort it out, or a fair approximation of sorting it out, or a fair approximation of God. Um, so I think, you know, how, how it looks at society's functioning under subprime condition, sort of focusing on the microcosm of what's happening in this, uh, this grocery store and how, as Charles Lawton says in the old dark house, needs must when the devil drives. I love that you brought that back around there at the end to the old dark house. Well done. Thank you very much. That's right, folks. It's the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the building single file. Walk, do not run. And uh, should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, well, you might as well walk out into that miss young lady because you got another thing coming. Okay, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film, or not. We'll break this section up into two segments, on a roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, or what didn't work. But before we get into it, I'm going to ask both of you to establish where we are on the playing field and just a basic yes or no response, please. Did you like this film? Gretchen? I wish you could see my cringy face right now. Um, I'm going to take a page out of Eric's book and not answer this with a simple yes or no. I'm going to say yes and no the first time I saw it versus the most recent time I saw it. And we can talk about that later. All right, Eric. I'm going to take a page out of Gretchen McNeil's taking a page out of my book and say, eh. Well, all right. Then let's get into it. it was monosyllabic. (laughs) On a roll first, round robin style. We will each name the scene or scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us and then we'll hand out our detention slips so gretchen as our guest you want to go first what's your first nomination for the honor roll my first nomination is i thought they did a really wonderful job of using practical effects for the most part to create an ominous viscous sentient almost mist um The one opening shot where it comes over the water is pretty bad by 2007 standards, but the rest of the time you can tell that they've actually created this haze of of mistiness outside the windows. My favorite is the scene where they first sort of experience it. They roll up that loading bay door just a foot or so, and there's a shot of the mist not entering yet, just kind of sitting there. It's very Mm. thick. It's Mm -hmm. kind of undulating a little bit. It's a wonderful shot. And I thought it was a great embodiment of character in a thing. You know, the mist itself is not as thinking, feeling, cursed as it is in, say, John Carpenter's The Fog. But in that moment, you feel it has a nice ominous quality. Some of the best shots of this film are when people are coming from or disappearing into the mist itself. And so that gets my first honor roll mention. Would you describe the mist as being kind of 
tentative when it's outside of the the loading dock door? It's assessing, it felt like to me. It's assessing what's happening inside. And again, like to perhaps the detriment of the film overall, that is not really explored. The mist itself just seems to bring with it these Lovecraftian monsters. Mm -hmm. But I love that moment because we're not sure yet. We're not really sure what's out there. It's the first time we're going to experience it as the audience, we've sort of seen the one guy run in screaming about monsters, but we haven't seen them yet. So in that moment, it's one of the most effective moments for me in the whole movie. Gretchen, Um, would you describe it like my mother describes thick fog, pea soup? Where did your mother grow up? Not far from uh, where this film allegedly takes place. Uh Aha, yes. Because we also, I grew up in San Francisco, and we also get the pea soup fog. And my mother uh, uses that term frequently. My first novel was set in San Francisco, and I use the fog in the opening scene, and I describe it as seeping into your clothes, into your body, kind of weighting you down with the moistness of it. And you can feel that when you look at this mist. Yes. Also, um, it it is not unlike what comes out of Reagan McNeil's mouth, Bradford, um, in a certain scene. Slightly less green. All kinds of green, just but all kinds of connections here. Lots of connections. Are you bringing this back to the McNeil connection? Obviously. (laughs) Now, see, I always thought the fog came in on little cat feet. That too, but I don't know if this comes in on little cat feet. I would say this comes in on little tentacles. Yeah, there you go. Little Lovecraftian tentacles. Yes. Um, Eric, do you have an honor roll nomination for The Mist? I should probably start off by admitting here that I quickly devoured King's novella, which appears in his collection Skeleton Crew shortly before seeing the film. I should say there are ways in which this film compares favorably and also unfavorably to the story. One of the favorable ways is the focus on the people in the store, the dynamic. You get a lot of that in the story, and you spend a lot of time in the film with people like Ollie and Dan and Amanda and Mrs. Repler and, of course, Mrs. Carmody. The film, I think, mainly reduces them to stereotypes, and that's kind of okay. I mean, it's a a two-hour movie, and there's a lot of characters, and you don't really get to explore all of them and their inner life. But I loved the the way in which they break into sort of political factions, mm-hmm. uh, including the one led by Mrs. Carmody, described in the novella as the Flat Earth Society, um, <laughs> that makes this, for me, more than a monster movie. I think King meant it as a comment on what happens when society breaks down, a la Lord of the Flies. And Darabont really leans into that, and I appreciated it. In giving out my first honor roll nomination, I'm going yes. to acknowledge... While we don't have Tallulah Bankhead, we do have Francis Sternhagen. Amen. I would like like Mm -hmm. to call out her performance as Irene Repler. Um, I love it when she chucks a can of peas at Mrs. Carmody and talks about Mm -hmm. how in the Bible it says it's okay to throw stones at people who piss (laughs) you off. Um, I love it when she turns a can of bug spray into a blowtorch to kill the acid web shooting spider. Uh, And for generally being a clear thinking, liberal minded badass, which is exactly what I would expect of Franny Sternhagen, since she is a Vassar girl. 
Oh, nice. See, uh, nice. We're, we're just tying up all kinds of loops All today. kinds of, of uh, threads, narrative threads from previous episodes. You're now doing callbacks See? to previous episodes of your own podcast, which is pretty rad. <laughs> Gretchen, let's, uh, let's take it back to your second mm-hmm. honor roll nomination on The Mist. I'm going to go with the sound design or lack thereof. Going with a limited score... Uh, there's a lot of moments where traditionally in an action or a horror movie, you would have rumblings uh, to add tension. You would have heavy violins to indicate something terrible is happening where they've left silence. And I appreciated that about this. It gave it a verite effect that matched some of the semi-improvisational feeling of the dialogue in places. And I thought that it enhanced the idea of being trapped, that there isn't sound all over the place. You're trapped in the space. The fog or the mist is muting noise. Mm -hmm. And I thought it really lent itself well to this film. Other movies would need more of a score, I think. I think this one benefited from lack thereof. Mr. Winnick, do you have a second honor roll nomination? I want to uh, sort of qualify something that I said in my last uh, honor roll nomination, because I think it is worth pointing out that though the film does contain some some stereotypes, um, there are some actors who manage to rise above that and create what I feel are sort of fully fleshed out characters. One is the person that you just mentioned, Mr. Lorick, national treasure Franny Sternhagen as Mrs. Repler. I also liked uh, Marsha Gay Harden as Bible-spewing Mrs. Carmody. You know, as much as you hate her and you cheer for her demise, she's very quiet if you watch in the beginning and she's observing. And then over the course of the film, more and more she begins to sort of take over and assert herself. And so I felt there was some some development there. And lastly, I just want to point out the performance of Toby Jones as Ollie Weeks. Um, First of all, this guy is a British character actor who usually plays weirdos and villains, like in Captain America. Um, He was just in the awful Netflix film, The Pale Blue Eye, but he was very good in it. Um, It was great to see him step up and play a hero in this film, especially with that gun. For me, I think his greatest accomplishment perhaps is making some really bad expository dialogue sound natural, like, like this line. Leave it alone, David. You can't convince some people there's a fire, even when their hair is burning. Denial is a powerful thing. Mrs. Carmody, one of the things I love about her performance is as she sort of starts to feel powerful, do you see her body loosen up? Her hair comes yes, down. Yes, she must have yes, had like 14 layers of clothes on because suddenly she's yep. in like a little dress with a little like cardi over it <laughs> where she was in this like school mom buttoned up, hair in the bun, oh, Mary in the librarian oh, yeah. style. In addition to these kinds of characters, though, even characters like Jim and Myron have arcs, you know, mm. they're, they're not so active. They're more acted upon, I think. 
by nature yeah, of perhaps. the kinds of characters that have been painted. But I right. do think that there are there, there is a lot of character development that happens regardless of how subtle it may be. So, you know, while we are certainly trafficking in types, I do think that they, they are all sort of given opportunities to show a bit of range. Bradford Lorick, you must have a second honor roll nomination. I think I'm going to give my my second nomination to the sort of strange and mutable design of the creatures. Mm. And we don't see a lot of the big ones. We certainly don't see what is controlling the tentacles that make short work of Norm, local bag boy. <laughs> local bag boy Norm. But, you know, there's a lot of seeming asymmetry to some of these designs. When the tentacles first make an appearance, they're sort of these long, blunt-ended tubes, but then what seems like a sort of solid appendage unfurls and becomes these kind of foliate, leaf-like, spiky weapons with all kinds of unique properties, that great tentacled Cthulhuic monolith at the end that walks past the car. I almost wish we got to spend more time with, uh, or, or are, were given the ability perhaps to savor the creature design just a little bit more. I had the opposite reaction to the monsters. I thought they were scarier when we couldn't see them. I see what you're saying, but I mean, I think, and, and you know, I always love a suggestion more than like a, a right. really in your face gesture, but even just for like a great hero shot of one of these things at some point, you know, I mean, there was so much care and, and time put into the design of them. I would just mm -hmm. like to have seen a little bit more of what, what they came up with. Gretchen McNeil. My third honor roll is going to go, it's, it, lends itself to what we were just discussing about the monsters and the pre-reveal uh, and the post-reveal. The pre-reveal monster scares, for me, were the best in this film. I thought the scariest stuff was the scene in the loading bay with that bulging door. I thought that was really fantastic, especially because Thomas Jane is sort of isolated by himself. The And I know this is after we see the tentacle and, and local bag boy Norm is pulled off to his death. But the scene with the rope where that poor biker, yes. bless his heart, is like, I'm going to make it and get the gun. I think we could use it. And then they're pulling it back and it goes red. That is a great moment that yes. was like that's inspired and then to have that torso just sitting out there i think they dragged it off too early i think we could have just left it there longer so that later when they they do attempt an escape that the torso's just still there um but <laughs> i i thought those looking over the old biker you on know, your way to the pharmacy like, as a reminder what happens when you go out there but i thought those two scares because we haven't seen all of these yet, I thought those were the two best sort of scare moments for me in the movie. Right. That biker was pretty tall, I have to say. I think if he you was. lay Toby Jones next to those those biker legs, they it's would be- It's a twofer, a, yeah. It's, it's two the same Toby size, Jones, basically. One yeah. biker. Okay, um, so my third honor roll- is for something that didn't happen in this film, believe it or not. Here is where I have to mention probably the most egregious misstep in the novella, which is 
a sequence taking place sometime in the middle of the second night. And I'm wondering if Gretchen knows what's coming oh, here. Oh, you're talking about the weird <clears throat> sex scene, right? So David and Amanda <laughs> sneak up to the manager's office and have sex. So apparently King makes a big deal about how he's been eyeing her and she's been eyeing him throughout the whole ordeal. And somehow the two of them have the presence of mind and ability to shut out the apocalypse so Mm -hmm. they can fuck in this thing. And I'm just like, it's so inappropriate. And I give credit to Frank Darabont for not putting that scene into the film. He does have one hookup in this film and it's completely unconvincing. That's coming up on my detentions. Number one on my list. (laughs) I'll I'll just mention it here briefly. It's of course, between private Jessup and Sally, the the -hmm. local checkout girl. Um, (laughs) Not to get too far into detention, but it's completely unconvincing. And Gretchen, I'll let you talk about yeah. it later. Bradford Lurk, uh, any comment or do you want to go to your third honor roll nomination? Well, I think it's it's real big of you to give points for Darabont keeping it clean. I, for for reining it in. Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I, I do give him credit for that because it is, a, it is a real misstep. And it's the thing that rings falsest, I would say, about the novella. All right. Well, you know, I'm I'm going to come in here with a third honor roll nomination, and I'm very curious to hear what uh, what our resident scribe has to mm. say about this because mm-hmm. I I feel like it could have very easily been on the detention list, but huh. in the scene starting around an hour and ten minutes in, um, the group are all back in the the loading bay, uh, and they've brought. Hattie's body back uh, after she commits suicide. Um, And they very unceremoniously deposit her body on top of a heap of bags of dog food. But then they have (laughs) a a whole scene's worth of conversation, basically, about the fundamental goodness or badness of mankind. I think that that is sort of what the entire film hinges upon, uh, because it is kind of a tiny story that is, um, you know, I mean, it's in a small town with regular people carrying on their lives, going to the grocery store following a natural disaster. But it all comes down to, you know, this, this, the lines are drawn here. This is the battleground. This is a sort of moral universe that King has created here. And I appreciate that the script kind of teases it out to the extent that it does. Are you referring to the conversation which Ollie says that he thinks people are fundamentally insane? Yes. Yeah. Over to Gretchen for her comment on that. So unfortunately, it was scenes like this that actually made my detention list because this was an implied world-building plot point that we should have been able to see and experience and interpret on our own. And I felt that one of the problems with the script is that it spoon-feeds us this moral commentary that, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very clear to me what's happening inside the store. And especially when you think about the context of 2007, 2006, probably when it was shot, where we're coming at the end of the Bush administration of years of like the neoconservative, power-hungry, Christian right flexing their muscles. And you see that play out in this store. And you see Mm -hmm. people who are 
you know, theoretically scared, weak-minded, don't have strong convictions, being swayed by the loudest voice in the room, which of course becomes the Fox News voice of Mrs. Carmody. Yes. And, but we see all that happening. So I don't need Toby Jones to tell me that he thinks people are fundamentally insane. And if he does, it just doesn't need to be embedded in a five-minute dialogue conversation. It could have been a blip. I think, Gretchen, that you make good points. I do wonder, because a lot of that dialogue is straight out of the novella, and whether there was some back and forth between King and Darabont in terms of the adaptation of this. Because I agree with you 100% that I think there should have been more showing and less telling. But at the same time, I wonder... Although he omitted the scene that he should have omitted correctly, he left in some dialogue that didn't have to be there because it's not a short story. It's It's a movie. It's not long form prose. Yes, absolutely. And that is one of those adaptation issues. You know, this is the reason that people rant and rave usually about how the book was better than the movie. We hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see where... Maybe they didn't want to cut out that dialogue, but there are other places in the script where this happens. For example, right after Norm's death, like they hang out in there for a while and sort of talk about it. And I'm like, no, just go tell everybody what the fuck just happened, right? Like, yeah. we're gonna ha- we're gonna have a conversation on Norm's death and what's out there. We know what's out. Like, we know. I don't need to hear you guys talk about it and process it. So there are moments like that where we could have saved 10, 15 minutes out of this overly long film, I thought. At the end of the day, movie theaters are not just filled with Gretchens and Eric's and Bradford's, you know? You got a there plate are, of not, area, right? There, are you there kidding are some, me? There are some Jims and Myrons in every audience. And, you know, if um, if if neatly encapsulating, let's say, not spoon-feeding, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, but if if neatly encapsulating uh, the the central theme of the story for, um, for audience members who otherwise might just be experiencing a monster movie, um, I think that is a, a, a propensity toward... Uh, toward giving your audience what it needs to appreciate what it is that you've made. It's interesting you should say that because I think Jim and Myron are falling asleep during that scene. They just want to see people get their legs burned off by acid. Oh, you mean the audience, not the... I was like, what are oh, the, the Jim audience. and Myron hoping I'm telling, for? Jim and the Myron... Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Bradford was making a point that yes. the Jim and Myron's yeah, of the world yes, yes, don't yes. want... They, he's saying they would prefer a little more explanation and my contention is the Jim and Myrons of the world just want to see people's heads get bitten well and that may be why the dialogue was retained in the film which is the filmmakers didn't think the point would get across without it to people who are just Mm -hmm. looking to see acid spitting spiders you know detention after school both of you you'll receive failing grades on this test Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. 
just perfect. Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Again, Gretchen, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you feel deserves detention or maybe the second aspect of this film? Right. Yeah, I was going to go with the weird makeout scene, but we'll talk about that on my second one. For now, mm-hmm. since we've been having this conversation about the script, I think we'll just we'll just flow right on in. I made my point about the showing and the telling and and what I think needed or did not need to be in the script. But there were a couple of additional pieces of things in the script that I just felt didn't work. I mean, aside from the fact that like Aaron Sorkin could have written a less wordy script for this. The use of the child. First of all, he's supposed to be, Billy is like eight, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Eric, and your experience with your child at that age, but there is no way that either of my kids would be handed off to a relative stranger in a grocery store and be like, you're going to stay with this nice lady and I'm going to go, you know, fuck off for 30 minutes and almost get eaten by monsters. And then again and again, there's no way my kids would do that. They would be freaking out. And, you know, unfortunately, Billy becomes essentially, he, he serves two purposes. One is to give us something for Amanda to do because with the omission of the weird sex scene, which I agree with you, did not need to be in this film, her role other than being the one who brings the gun to the party is diminished she doesn't have much other than that she's an ally on david's team here they write in this bit that her husband gave it to her she's married so she's not a threat they wanted to have kids but it didn't work out so Mm -hmm. she has maternal instincts that were a sort of unrequited but she does not serve much of a purpose in this film, her character and um, Franny's character in terms of their relation or their antagonism to Mrs. Carmody basically serve the same role. So she becomes just one more body on David's team. So uh, my first attention slip is about the Arrowhead project. And uh, this is unfortunately a case where Uh, I do have to refer back to the novella because I do believe in the novella, it is more of a rumored, whispered about thing that's never really solidified. There is some talk about gates to other dimensions being opened, but nothing tangible. Here, what is much more overt is the role that the military played. So the MP in 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 the pharmacy, when he says that line, it's our fault, It sort of explains why all of this is happening and takes away some of the existential dread that makes this such an effective story. And we're going to talk about the ending in a separate detention slip. I'm not going to leave that for a little bit later. But the thing is, is that I didn't need to know that the Arrowhead Project was responsible for this. I would much rather have that be ambiguous. But I mean, I think at the same time, from a screenwriting perspective, that choice is about 
It, it, it's like the narrative conclusion consolation prize. Do you know what I mean? You, like, yeah, I, I would say they would get dinged for that if they hadn't explained it in the film. Like, right. I think that you would have had people saying, and they didn't even explain why it happened, as opposed to like applauding that. Right. Yeah. And, then, I and mean, with such a sort of broadly kind of ambiguous and ostensibly unsatisfying ending, probably for a lot of viewers, it That's at least true. gives you something to go on. That's true. And I will say that the the two guys, the two uh, um, Jessup's colleagues there do hang themselves in the novella as well. So there is some implication, some implication mm-hmm. exactly that they are responsible, but it's not nearly as overt as it is in the film. Yeah. Well, hey. And can we just can we just talk about the MP for two seconds? Like, Poor if you're guy. in a room full of spiders and there's a dude who's pulsating get the fuck out of there. Have you never seen like a spider's nest? I'm like, what are you guys are just talking to? Let's just hang out longer and talk. No, get out. Get out now. Like they wait so long to leave that drugstore. It's yeah, ludicrous. Yeah, they do, they do kind of stand there and goggle at him for a while. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, there's nothing good that's going to come out of that guy. Literally. No. And I mean, look, right. at the end of the day, sulfidine is not going to help. Or sylvadine is not going to help anybody. So it's like, just stay put, sit tight, and wait for rescue to come. Bradford Lorick, uh, why don't you give us your first detention slip on this film? Well, I think I'm going to be picking up a little bit from where Gretchen left off. Not exactly, but I'm going to ding the writing. Um, And specifically with regard to the the crafting of Brent Norton. The character mm. uh, yes. Andre Brower plays because it, it, the writing feels a little bit facile a lot of the time. Like in the in the first scene where Jim and Myron and Ollie Weeks and David Drayton are are trying to bring Brent back to the loading dock to show him the carnage, and he objects, but he objects in such a way that feels utterly false and it's Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of disproportionate reaction in this film yes yes you are 100 percent correct (laughs) but this is one that that it's just like once more beyond proportion Uh, you know and i think that there could have been uh, andre brower is a really great actor and i think that that through some subtler writing of that character he would have expressed himself more effectively yeah, I mean, he does think the piss is being taken out of him, like, way too much. Forever! Yeah. yeah. And again, we repeat it and repeat it. Like, if that was in fiction, my editor would be like, okay, yeah, we've we've heard him say this, like, three times already, Gretchen. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and, and thankfully, you do have Andre Brower in that role, who, right. who makes it sort of palatable, but I agree with you about the writing. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Gretchen. Second detention slip. All right, I teased this. Uh, it's going to have to go to the utterly unnecessary and ill-conceived makeout scene between ah. Private Jessup and his eyebrows. And <laughs> Sally, we have to spend 10 goddamn minutes with the two of them. Yeah. Talking about how they had a crush on each other in high school, but then yep. Private Jessup never moved on it. And now, oh, we should do it now while we're in a storeroom beset by monsters and people are dying. You know what would be a great thing to do right now? 
make out, maybe get it on on the floor. Again, YA fiction in particular gets dinged for this all the time, which is like, why do characters have time to like explore their emotional mm-hmm. feelings in the midst of like an, a huge world crisis? And here we are in a <laughs> major motion picture watching. And of course, they're supposed to be young. They are in a way the YA uh, facsimiles for yeah. the analogs for this film. It's ludicrous. It's completely fucking ludicrous. Gretchen, I totally agree with you. Uh, I I do think that was the consolation prize for not having the um the but David and Amanda need sex scene. Any sex at all? You, like, don't. you, you don't. don't. You don't. You right. don't. But I think in a way, I mean, Mrs. Carmody is already having sex with her Bible, and you're gonna get <laughs> tweets about that. Clearly, if you leave it in. It's almost like it's a crucifix that she's. Yeah, that, Never mind. that going Never back mind. to Reagan. The, thank you, Gretchen. Uh, Bradford Lorick, why don't you do your second detention slip? Go well, ahead. thank you very much, Mr. Winnick, because- My pleasure. I, I'm i giving it to- It's a tie Yeah, for me between okay. S- Sam Witwer's left eyebrow- and <laughs> Sam Witwer's right eyebrow. They're Poor so Sam Witwer. I had to look the dude up on IMDb to see if this was a regular thing. I mean, I don't know if this is a medical condition that he suffers from, but these are, I, I mean, I don't even know if this was like a good idea in 2009 but they are some very overexcited punctuation marks that are happening on the top third of his head face it's so distract i can't stop laughing i'm like crying over here you know it's Um, also sort of explains why he's more like a more of a voice actor than like than someone you see on screen yeah because he's Look, Star Wars fans I mean, worldwide he's like an, love Sam Whitmer. Well, he's like an extra from Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, <laughs> Julie Newmar. And somebody in the makeup department should have addressed that problem because they are distracting. Yeah. Second detention slip. Quick question. Why is it important that David is a movie poster artist? And what impact does this have on the plot? I mean, I like the touch of seeing the the thing poster in his studio at the mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from casting him as something of an outsider, which he kind of is and kind of isn't in this town, what is the resonance of that aside from the other reference, which I think Norton makes to the creature being from planet X or something? I, I think it really is just to give Jim something to rant about in his big you city people and your Hollywood connections mm-hmm. scene. Honestly, I can't think of another reason. Although it's a it is device. cool to see him painting I think it's cool. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I, yeah. I just think it's like a quirky choice that I really like. I mean, of course, I have made a poster or two in my life. Um, but I, I just think it's a pretty nifty uh, idea. And the fact that he's... Um, that he's sort of a, a commercial artist who's hand painting these things, which is kind of a a lost or, or waning art form that, that was so important, especially to a lot of King's early novels. Um, you know, I mean, I just, I think it's a, an unusual choice that I certainly have a, a, an appreciation for. Gretchen, it is time for your third detention slip. Personally, I cannot wait for this. Again, I think you and I are on the same page here with the ending. Mm-hmm. Now, I have had 
a couple of my books that were turned into TV movie, TV series. Nothing on the level of Stephen King and his adaptations, right? But I know what it's like to see your written word changed, modified for the screen. It's totally normal. It happens all the time. Nothing can be 100% faithful to the book, nor should it be. But the ending of this film versus the ending of the novella is absolutely gratuitous. To spoil it completely, I know you've already done spoiler warnings. They run out of gas in the car. And instead of facing whatever fate of these monsters, they decide to all eat a bullet. And we get to see this wonderful scene of Thomas Jane killing his eight-year-old son. To yes. be honest, you 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 hear okay, some. You bangs. don't actually see it. It doesn't matter. In my mind, I saw it. And here's right. the thing: right. before I put a bullet in either of my children, that fucking tentacle better be coming through the window. I want to know that there is no other way. That is the only time I would do that. That I would actually like harm them to prevent them from further pain. That's it. So I, and the funny thing, when I saw this movie in the theater in 2007, it absolutely didn't bother me. I was like, oh, that's so like, oh God, that's awful. As a parent in 2023, I was like, fuck this choice. Fuck Frank Darabont for making this choice. Does he not have children? Does nobody involved in this have a kid? Like I just... I, I don't, like, violence against children, it, it's going to exist. I literally write books where teens get, like, brutally, brutally murdered, right? I don't have a problem right. with that. But the way that it unfolds in this scene, and then to have him have his platoon moment afterwards on his knees outside the Jeep when he realizes they were moments away from being saved, it's not that the novella has a happy ending. It has a very... Dawn of the Dead ending, where they fly off in that helicopter. ruining Dawn of the Dead now. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, where they fly off in the helicopter, and yes, they've escaped the mall, but they don't know what's out there. They don't know how far they'll get with the fuel that's in the helicopter, and the fate is unknown. And the novella ends very much like that, where he's like scanning through radio frequencies and just hears. Like, I forget what he hears, but it's something that leads him. Right. So the idea that, like, maybe there's still civilization on the eastern seaboard that they should head for or something. Like, whatever it is, it's not a happy ending. No. And it is, you know, slightly nebulous, but, like, the ending of this movie pissed me off. Yeah. That's interesting. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's- Sorry to bring the room down. But no, not, not at how all. You really feel well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, just I, I won't repeat what you just said because you sort of encapsulated what I was going to say. Which encapsulated, th- encapsulated. The novella ends with David, his son, and the other survivors hold up in a Hojo's motel off the main ah, interstate. Um, right. The mist has not dissipated. The monsters are still out there. And he tells us they're going to try to make it to Hartford. Which is how this and, movie overlaps with uh, Waiting for Guffman. Yes, exactly. Well, there's there's a comparison I never thought I'd hear. You know, he then steps outside. He waits for that. I'm going to talk about this in the superlatives. But like Thomas Chains, like freak out. It starts in the van and like continues outside is like the the biggest, you know, crime of overacting in this in this film. Um, and it's too bad they couldn't have a better actor to do it because it, it might have been slightly more convincing. 
But I actually would compare the end of this film to the Twilight Zone because there is a very ironic ending to it in the sense that, of course, the mist dissipates very suddenly. He thinks a monster is coming towards him. It turns out to be a tank. He sees the woman who left early in the film to go get her kids because her eight-year-old was watching her six-year-old or five-year-old. Four-year-old or something. Right. She's survived somehow. She's on a truck. Like, what did she go through? Uh, I'm sure Darabont was very proud of this ending, but honestly, I don't want resolution in a film like this. I think it's much more powerful. And I feel like we're saying this over and over, and I think this is why this is such an interesting conversation, is the idea of leaving something ambiguous, just a tiny, tiny spark of hope in that one word, Hartford, is enough to kind of make you feel like, okay, maybe, maybe there's there's something brighter out there. And I wish Darabont had gone with that. And I'm surprised that King let him take it in this direction. Well, but I mean, it's also unsatisfying for a couple of reasons, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, it's it's not just that it, I mean, ends on a note of, hope or ends on a note of, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like this guy has just obliterated his entire life. Um, His wife is dead. His wife is dead. You know, I mean, like, so so there's, I I, I don't think that those um, parameters set up a satisfying experience for the lion's share of audience members, you know? Um, Yeah. I, I think they they need to understand that like the monster has been vanquished so they can get up, throw away their popcorn and go home, you know? Yeah, yeah and I'm fine with a bleak ending. It just, this did not work for me. This one did not work. Yeah, I, I, I agree with what Bradford's saying. And I think that we're kind of wishing that we lived in a different world, <laughs> you know, in a world. In a in world. Which- Right. Well, in in a world where movies don't have to end on a completely, you know, buttoned up conclusion. Right. Right. Anyway. All right. uh, Very interesting. Uh, Bradford Lork, you've got one more or have you finished? No, I I do. I have one more. One more. Um, Take us take us home. And it's 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 um, it's easy and it's small, but it's it it just points to some problematic thinking on behalf of the characters. And this is the improbability of turning on one million light sources inside a space that insects seem to be attracted to. Mm, Okay. Yeah, that scene with Norm and, uh, sorry, Jim and Myron, like running around, flipping on lights. Yeah, and I mean, all the way through the um, fighting prehistoric, Thulonic mm-hmm. monsters with flaming buckets of lighter g- fluid, gr- grill yeah. igniter, Molotov you know? cocktails. Yeah, exactly. You also you are kind of assuming that these are typical uh, insects that react to light in the way that normal insects do. Well, Eric, which is to say, they're attracted to it. Let's say that if I saw an enormous, like foot long mosquito, <laughs> yes, hovering outside my window. I might turn off the lights. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) True. Whether whether or not they scientifically share characteristics with insects that are drawn to light, I might take what I know. Exactly. I might 
I might make an educated guess based on what I know to be true and perhaps <laughs> not light a bunch of buckets of shit on fire and run around this, this, my grocery store setting my patrons ablaze, you know? I might just have a little <laughs> bit of a different approach to it if I were a character in this film. All right, so before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take our little recess break, get some air into our lungs, run around a little bit, expend some energy, maybe have a snack. Gretchen, I know you've been here before, but why don't you remind our listeners what your favorite snack was when you were growing up? Well, you just can't beat those cheese and crackers in a little plastic tin some oh, yeah. Oh, liquefied my gelatinous cheese. Oh, with the red some knife. S- a little some red spreader. Of crackers and a little spreader. plastic spreader. red spreader. I guess they wouldn't let kids have a knife back then. I mean, it was it was like 70s and 80s. Like, I'm surprised it wasn't serrated or something. All right, everybody. So now let's take a break and we will come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, and Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here, either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those wicked annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, best smile and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do that first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for Gaspar Noe, the director of such uh, delightful family films as Irreversible, Enter the Void, Lux Eterna, and Climax. Gretchen McNeil, why don't you start us off? What do you got? Well, I'm not going to beat a dead horse and go with the scene in the car. Um, So I think I'm going to go with Sally's bloated (laughs) death scene body. Oh. Like she puffs up like uh, Violet Violet Violet. in Willy Wonka. Oh, yes. Um, And then, like, again, she has served zero purpose, so I kind of don't give a shit that she's dying. But, like, it's disturbing to watch, like, her get stung on the neck by that, you know, mosquito-y thing and then just swell up like a zit about to pop and then dies with her eyes open. You know, that's rough. You know, it's funny because I was going to give my Gaspar Noe Award to the first appearance of the bug on the window, which is one of the true jump scares of this film. But I got to go with the spider scene in the pharmacy with the MP and the, you know, like his face bursts open and spiders come out and then he falls down and then his entire kind of back opens up and it's just like this pouring out of these like tons and tons of baby spiders. I don't know what it was in service of, but it was pretty damn disturbing. I think it was in the service 
of disturbing you. Well, it sure did. Bradford, what do you have for the Gaspar Noe Award? Well, guys, I'm going to I'm going to talk about that scene. I'm going to talk about that scene again. Ugh. The last scene. Ugh. And I think it is objectively the most disturbing scene in the film, regardless Agreed. of your yeah. your qualms with yeah. uh, how it's You're, written. Right, 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 right. But they've run out of gas. They're in the car. They're counting out the bullets. David is going to kill everyone ahead of himself and then dispatch with himself next. He shoots his son next to last. And you can tell this because of the intense, emotional, cathartic sounds he's making when it happens. And then, as if by magic, the mist almost immediately begins to, uh, to dissipate. And he's sort of sitting there in this, like, Beckettian wasteland with a gun barrel in his mouth trying to shoot himself with no ammunition, but everything's okay, or everything is going to be okay, or everything is going to be okay for other people who are not David Drayton. And it makes me think, it makes me wonder, and I'm curious about what you guys think about this, but perhaps... Mrs. Carmody was right and that expiation was needed because biblically speaking, the greatest sacrifice has always been a son by his own father. I did not pick up on that mostly because I think I was just so angry mm-hmm. at the scene, but I can I, definitely I can pick see up it. on what you're laying down. Which brings us to a slightly brighter uh, moment, the uh, Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live, but sadly does not uh, in this film, uh, named after, of course, Sigourney Weaver's character, Ellen Ripley, in Alien, Aliens, Mm -hmm. Alien 3, and of course, Alien Resurrection. The Quickening. The Quickening. Um, Bradford the electric Lord, 20, boogaloo. The electric <laughs> boogaloo. Bradford, speaking of electric boogaloo, why don't you start us off? Maybe Ollie? Mm. Maybe Billy? I don't know. It's tough to say. Um, well, I really like Ollie, uh, but I think that, you know, Billy is the, the chance to repopulate. You know, Billy is the, mm. the, the new generation. So maybe Billy should have survived. Just because you said Ollie, I am going to uh, follow that up and say Ollie Weeks, absolutely, a hundred percent. He he wins my Ellen Ripley Award. I just just the the way he stands with that gun and when he dispatches Mrs. Carmody with like that <laughs> fierce look on his on his face, you it's know, a great moment. He, he apologizes to David like, I didn't mean to kill her. And David's like, no, it's great, actually. I'm so glad you did that. One of the few moments of levity in this film. Okay, Gretchen, Ellen Ripley. I'm going to go with the nameless biker whose torso is left uh, outside the store. He's mm-hmm. trying to do something to help everybody. He doesn't know what's out there, but he boldly goes. Um and he, you know, trusts that they've got his back with that rope. And sadly, he gets dispersed. Does he have a name? I mean, you guys seem to know all the character names. And I can only his recall like a third of them. Biker. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay. Which brings us to the Michael Myers Award for character that it most deserved to die and does. Uh, 
Gretchen McNeil, remind our audience, who is Michael Myers? Michael Myers is the iconic faceless slasher killer from John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. Who's the recipient of your Michael Myers Award? So I'm going to go with a less obvious choice than our um, scene-chewing Mrs. Carmody. And I'm going to go with local bag boy Norm. Uh, The moment he says the word pussy, I'm like, you're fucking dead. And I'm glad I'm glad for it. That's fine by me. I appreciated that his death was gleefully painful and hideous. Bradford Lurick, what do you have for the Michael Myers Award? Well, there are a lot of characters in this film who deserve to die. Yes. Many of whom do. Uh, local bag boy Norm sucks. He deserved it a lot. The guilty military police and the other guys from the Arrowhead Project aware of what they've unleashed. But I think <clears throat> it may be an obvious choice, but I think it's Mrs. Carmody because she proves that sometimes the monsters inside are worse than the monsters outside. The monsters we know are worse than the ones we spy on by ripping holes in time and space. So I'm giving my Michael Myers Award for the character that most deserved to die and does to Marsha Gay Harden as Mrs. Mother Carmody. Very good. Uh, And I am going to give this award to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um... (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> Anti-vaxxer, QAnon freak, flat earther. No, of course it's Mrs. Carmody. Yeah. So uh, totally, totally agree with you there, Bradford. Which brings us to the Ken Russell Award. Ken Russell, director of Altered States, The Boyfriend, The Devils, Salamania, Last Dance, Tommy, Whore, uh, Whore. Whore. Take the Whore. money. Take the money. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll start us off with this. It's probably has to be that whole crazy fucking sequence with the bugs and the birds flying around the store, having gotten in through a hole in the plate glass window. That sequence is just pure mayhem and carnage. In the midst of it all, there's this great moment where a bug lands on Mrs. Carmody and she kind of looks like she's getting ready to die. She's like accepting her fate. And then the bug flies away and she's like, praise the Lord. But that whole sequence is just pure Baroqueness to me. Bradford, what do you got? Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. When the giant Yay! mosquitoes yep. and the pterodactyls have breached Ugh. the plate glass windows, Ugh. when the fuel-soaked mops come out, yep. and I include... Uh, this is up to and including the moment where Joe Eagleton catches fire and runs around like Freddy Krueger just had a run in with Nancy in the basement. You know, the only thing missing from that scene, and I'm sure Mrs. Carmody would have would have enjoyed this, was khaki clad guys with tiki torches. Uh, Gretchen McNeil. Microfiche. Oh, Microfiche. You tease. Oh. Gretchen, what do you have for the Ken Russell Award? All right, well, it's not going to be a clean sweep. I have a different scene in mind. Oh, shit. And this is, I think you'll appreciate this. This is the mosh pit transportation 
of Private Jessup's stabbed and bleeding body. Like he's just jumped off the stage at a Nirvana concert. And he's like, what's happening? And then they shove him out and he just puts his hand. I know you were distracted by his eyebrows. You might've missed this one. Yeah. And then he puts a bloody hand on the glass and says, please. And then gone. Taking us to our final award, the Brad Dourif Award for character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. Um, do we really need to explain who Brad Dourif is at this point? I guess we should. Um, if this is your first time listening, Brad Dourif is the actor best known for uh, the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise. Uh, also, uh, James Veneman, the, the Gemini, Gemini killer in The Exorcist 3, which Exorcist we covered 3. extensively last season. Oscar nominee for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Best known, perhaps, for taking uh, things a little bit too far. Um, although or not, just far enough. Or just far enough. Certainly not without entertainment value. Um, Gretchen, do you want to start us off for this I award? would love to. I think Brad would really shine in a onesie overall as Jim, who I think is a mechanic in this. Jim, who uh, changes sides in this game more frequently than square dancers change partners, uh, who gives that (laughs) wonderful monologue about you and your Hollywood connections. Um, Despite William Sadler, the actor who actually played Jim, despite his wonderful work as death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, I feel like Dourif could really have rocked all those character turns and really left us wondering, who fucking side are you on, Jim? I like yeah, that. That's good. Bradford. I think his Mrs. Carmody would be on a Piper Laurie level. Oh, yeah. But I'm not sure this movie could handle a lot of Dourif. I think maybe it just needs a soupçon of Dourif. A little, just a sprinkling of Brad. A sprinkling Um, or an inkling? Well, I've got an inkling that maybe he would have been a great hick Jim, the vacillating bumpkin. But I think that I would also really appreciate him as Sally the cashier. (laughs) (laughs) And her makeout scene. I mean, it would certainly give reason for his eyebrows to be so animated. But I think that he would have played the death scene of Sally the cashier um, Mm. with his usual aplomb. You mean where she like blows up like Violet is turning Violet? Violet, Mm. you're turning Violet, Violet. Um, This just gives me another opportunity to talk about Star Wars. You know, I look for opportunities to do that. Not only do we have Sam Witwer in this film, the voice of Darth Maul, we also have the final moment in the film where Thomas Jane is just going completely haywire and understandably so he has shot his son. He shot Amanda. He shot other people. He shot national treasure, Franny fucking Sternhagen. Okay. It is so reminiscent of a scene in a film that I like to call revenge of the Sith. When they tell Anakin now Darth Vader that his wife, Padme Amidala, has died in childbirth, he stands up awkwardly as Darth Vader and screams out, No! In what is perhaps the worst worst moment in all nine films. Uh, If not the worst, maybe close to the worst. It's pretty bad. So maybe a better actor could have pulled it off, but... So do you want Brad Dourif to play Anakin Skywalker? 
Uh, no, I want him to play Thomas Jane in that scene only. Just like, just cut to <laughs> Thomas cut to. Jane gets he out of the suddenly, car and we yes. cut to Brad Dorif. Yes. It's fucking amazing. That's for the it. for all of the associated and adjacent eyeball acting that Mr. Dorf <laughs> could do in that moment. You know what? Maybe we could can we just hear an audio from that? And with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night. Final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Gretchen, would you like to go first? I'm going to take my thoughts about the final moment out and try to just assess the rest of the movie because I know that this that's a very personal reaction that I have to the ending of this film. That said, it still only merits... C minus, maybe a C. I'm going to go with a C because there were some good moments, but it just really fell flat for me. All right. That's valid. Um, Mr. Winnick? I am going to go slightly sunnier than Ms. McNeil. Um, you have to view this as a film. You can't sort of see it as, you know, as a, it's not the short story. It's, it's somebody else's. It's not else's, an adaptation. It's, it's a standalone film. Yeah, It's somebody else's sort of vision of that. But it is still a pretty cool idea for a story, you know, and it's still handled pretty well. And it's pretty fucking scary at times. Um, But the dialogue is just so leaden and it's so expository. And, you know, for that reason, um, I'm going with a B minus. All right. Uh, and I am going to give it a B plus. I think, you know, we we really get into the nitty gritty and all the detail in this conversation. But at the end of the day, it is a prestige project with an objectively great cast who are acting very well when you consider what a, what what acting in other genre offerings can be. So looking at it from that perspective, I mean, I think it's exceedingly well done. Um, If some of the dialogue might ring a bit false, I I feel like it's it's communicating to to the bottom of its audience and that it's doing a a good service in those moments. So Um, come on in, common denominator. We got one for you. Bottom feeders, come on down. Unite. I'm not exactly saying that, but, you know, I mean, it's not... I mean, in the the realm of vaporous-based horror films, The Fog, there's... uh, Never heard of Trollenberg Terror. Never heard of it. Twister. As twist, I you know I have a love for Twister. We won't even get into that. Don't let's not get um, into it. No, but um, you know it's it's firmly in the middle of the vapor based weather related <laughs> weather related horror. It's a new subgenre, weather horror. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, if you do, tell your friends, share our episodes on the social medias, have a listening party, 
bring some cheese and crackers with a little red plastic stick, and hey, just <laughs> just subscribe. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our guest, Gretchen McNeil. Gretchen, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? I'm on Instagram. Where am I online? I don't even know. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Gretchen underscore McNeil. And I'm on Twitter at just at Gretchen McNeil. That's it. And do you want to reiterate uh, your next book is coming out when exactly? My next book, Three Drops of Blood, which is the young adult homage to Hitchcock's Rear Window, will hit shelves March 21st, just right. around the corner. Excellent. Amazing. Looking forward to that. Thank and we you. will, of course, be sure to um, pump that information out to our social oh, yeah. channels Aww. as well. Pump That's it love. out. Meanwhile, I have relinquished my domain, www.therealgretchenmcneil.com. Oh, God. And I these days, that. well, you know, I mean, we still have to work out, you know, what, what, what it's going to cost you to get it back. Fine. But, um, It'll be uh, worth it. But these days, you can mostly find me at www.bradfordlorick.com. Um, so you can find me at Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yam Audio Works. You mean Yarn Audio Works? No, Eric, I mean Yam. Yam, 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 as in sweet a fucking potato. Okay, fine. Yam Audio Works, whatever. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week in the produce aisle of pustulant putrefaction we like to call Scare You. Ha <laughs> ha